Hello everyone and welcome to episode 22 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello. Mark Stockley. Hi. And Matt Boddy. Hola. Coming up on today's show, Matt talks about a company storing passwords in plain text. Duck talks about some cryptocurrency mudslinging and Mark gets irate about the Momo challenge. What have you been up to this week, guys? I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of the show, Michael Curtis, who works for professional services at Sophos. And I asked him, what one thing would you like us to cover on the podcast that you haven't heard? And his sage advice was, remember, the tools that the hackers are using these days are the tools you already have installed on your network. So they're relying on things like PowerShell and things like PSExec to do the bad stuff that they do. So remember, folks, lock those things down so that only the people that need access to them, like your admins, are the people who can get access to them. Amen to that. Nmap is a very useful tool to map out your network, but you don't need everybody running it on a whim, and you don't need to leave it lying around where crooks don't have to manage to install it for themselves. So last week we heard about a utility company sending its customers their passwords in plain text, but it wasn't just one company, was it, Matt? No, that's right. It was 250 utilities companies that used a third party called SEDC uh, that were based in Atlanta. They were emailing people when they'd lost their passwords. They'd say, do you want to reset your password or do you want to have your password sent to you? And they were they were just sending out to them, basically, saying, this is your password. Please log back in. So if they're emailing their passwords in plain text, then presumably that means they're sitting somewhere in a database in plain text. Yeah, precisely right. So it means that organization has access to those passwords that, that haven't been encrypted, haven't haven't been hidden from their view at all. So Matt, if you had to pick a way to store a password uh, that the hackers most wanted you to use, what would it be? That, that, well, plain text. You'd, you'd keep them in a database with play, in, completely in plain text so that if an attacker got onto that, onto that server, that database, whatever it happens to be, they can just read them all and use them. And if you've got, as SEDC does, 15 million clients, then, then you're quite likely to have a huge treasure trove of possibly 15 million passwords in there, 15 million usernames, which is an absolute goldmine to an attacker. So we've had some comments from people on Naked Security saying, trying to defend SEDC, saying things like, this story is ultimately pointless because receiving, uh, receiving a power company's password gets a hacker nowhere because the power company is just keeping publicly available information on that individual. It's such a basic security precaution. Why would you not do it? I'm entrusting you with something that we're both supposed to keep secret. Why wouldn't you do me the politeness of storing it properly at the other end? And if you think your information is of no value, then explain Facebook and Google and all the other companies that are absolutely minting it off nothing else. Yeah, and and this isn't just a power company, right? It's a, my understanding is it's a utilities billing company. So if you can get loads and loads of passwords, you can get additional information about loads and loads of consumers, how they pay their bills, when they pay their bills, maybe access to people who are in arrears, people who like to pay in advance, even that sort of stuff, absolute goldmine to a social engineer. So the harder you can make it for somebody to break into lots of accounts at the same time, the safer everybody is. So it it doesn't bode well for the security decisions they've made about all the other information they keep and use about you. So the researcher found this problem, raised it with the company. So they, they fix it quickly? 
No, so the researcher was raising it with them and there was a lot of to and fro between the researcher and the uh, utilities company or SEDC. And essentially they they were saying this isn't really a problem. They, they, they actually eventually said to this researcher, please don't contact us again about this. At which point, instead of instead of trying to persist with contacting them, he followed their advice, didn't contact them again. Instead, he just spoke to the media and said, this is the problem I'm having. I don't like it. I don't like that they've got my password in plain text. What can you do about it? And they just published the story. I'd like to assume that SEDC are going to take this a little bit more seriously at this point. The nice irony is if you have made this shallow security decision to store passwords in plain text you can bulk convert them to hashed passwords because you've got the original password for input so you actually get a one-time shot to switch from plain text passwords to hashed passwords without the user having to do anything you don't have to reset their passwords you don't even have to change them duck can you think of a handy resource that somebody wanting to do that might be able to consult in order to find See out what you're doing there. how they should be storing their passwords securely. Are you thinking of you're, you're not thinking of a naked security.sophos.com and then search for serious security how to store your customers' passwords safely, are you? Mark's right, we have a detailed article which goes through the various strengths that you can use for storing passwords, starting with plain text and ending with salted, hashed and stretched. If someone inside your company goes rogue, grabs hold of the password database and runs off with it, they don't get people's actual passwords. So it's a very simple precaution and you absolutely should be taking it. And you'll put that in the show notes, won't you? I will. Thanks. So when I hear stories like this, I just imagine that somewhere deep in the bowels of this company, there is probably some beleaguered sysadmin who knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing and can't convince anybody... Because this isn't new advice. Yeah. This is this is decades old advice. And it, it's difficult to imagine that nobody at the company understands why that's important and how you should be doing it. So one of the things that SEDC said is that they were PCI DSS compliant. Is that enough? No, because PCI DSS is all about protecting people's credit cards and debit cards. It's payment card industry standard. So it's not to do with your databases and how you store passwords. And that wouldn't necessarily be tested by a PCI uh, DSS compliance audit uh, or by being PCI DSS compliant. I always think of standards like the annual safety check that many countries have for motor vehicles. It's the absolute minimum standard without which your car is deemed unfit for use. It just means that it's a start. Why wouldn't you expect them to go above and beyond, given that it's such a little bit of extra work to store passwords securely? Yeah, absolutely. So people can't necessarily legislate for what how companies are going to store their passwords. So what have you got any basic advice for anyone in terms of passwords to FA? Yeah, so, so if you are using any password on any website, it's good to assume that that website is, is is insecure or going to be breached at some point. It's always good to assume to segregate your passwords, whatever website they're on. You Different. can't use your cat's name on every website. No, not even cat one, <laughs> cat two, cat three. Exactly. No way. Yeah, I know. Do you need to run out and change your password? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I might be some time, guys. I've got 100 websites to change. What, Mark, do you call yours after your hens? My hens don't have names. That's yeah, cool. well, do you call them hen one, hen two, hen three? Because that would be a bad No, no, hen zero one. Hen zero one. 
just in case. And wouldn't you start at zero as well? This what sounds like saying? a great argument for web authen to me. Yeah. Because I think one of the really, one of the, the big sort of unmovable problems with uh, password security is, you know, passwords are secret. You're not supposed to share it with anybody. But in order to use it on a website, you have to share it with the website and you don't know what they're doing with it. Exactly. So you hope that they're storing it in a duck compliant way, but they might just be <laughs> sticking it on a you know, notepad and, and, you know, stuffing it in a database in plain text and you don't know and you can't control it. So, you know, you can create the strongest password in the world, but if it's stored in plain text, then it's going to take zero seconds to crack. So WebAuthn doesn't store anything, doesn't trust anything with the website. And, you know, watch this space 20, 30, 40 years, we'll all be using WebAuthn. So what should, what, what should people do now? So if you have reused the same passwords on lots of services, including your utility company, uh, then reset your password for those services to something unique. The easiest way to do that is with something like a password manager. So using a password manager, you can auto-generate a password for each web service you're wanting to use it for, and it will store that password for you. You just have to remember one password. And if somebody sends you a password in plain text in an email, say something. Yeah. And the other way around, if somebody reports this and says, you know, it would be really nice if you could just bring yourself into the 21st century with the way you store passwords, then a response like, please do not contact us again, probably isn't going to get you quite the publicity you want. And use 2FA wherever available, right? Yes. Although one wonders just how enthusiastic a company that isn't prepared to stop storing passwords in plain text is going to be about supporting two-factor authentication for their customers. That is true. Uh, And even if they do, then that's not an excuse to say, oh, well, we'll just leave the passwords in plain text. You actually, defense in depth says you make a reasonable effort to do the right thing about security at each stage. Okay, on to our next subject, which is a password war between a cryptocurrency vendor and a buyer. Duck, can you talk us through what's going on here? Yes, there's a chap who goes by the name of Warith al-Mawali, and he tried a new cryptocurrency cold wallet product called Coinomi. And to import his original wallet stuff, it's encrypted with a 12-word passphrase. He pasted this passphrase into the new password manager, and shortly afterwards, or so he says... $60,000 worth of crypto coins somehow magically got spent. Somebody must have got the password. Now, there are loads of ways that could have happened. But the one he's sticking to now, he started by saying that it was because Koinomi's app was not digitally singed. I think he meant signed, um, but he made a typo. Uh, And then he changed his story and he decided it was because they did have a potentially dangerous bug in their software in that It uses a version of the Chromium browser for its user interface. And when it sees you typing what look like regular words into a field that isn't labeled as a password, then built into this library function that they just used is a, hey, let's do a spelling check. So it fires up an HTTPS connection to Google and sends off the words in Mm. the field to Google to see if they're spelled correctly, which technically means, although they're in, in an encrypted tunnel, your passphrase is actually sent out over the internet. And he became convinced that this is how the password leaked and this is that somebody must have got hold of it and this bug is the single sole reason why I lost this 60,000 bucks. So did Koinomi apologise? To be fair to them, they did come back and say this should not have happened. 
they recognize that what they did is, I think they wrote the program in a programming language called Java, and then they used this toolkit called JX Browser, which is a way of building the Chromium browser engine into your Java app so you can do all your user interface using HTML. And they forgot when they borrowed this giant library code, they forgot to turn off the thing that does spelling checking, which is a cool feature, but not for password fields. And they admitted they'd made that mistake and they fixed it very quickly. And they're even trying to contact him to talk about whether he would get a bug bounty. What they're saying, though, is that they don't think that although the password's technically left his computer in this encrypted tunnel, they can't see how this is the one and only explanation for how his funds went missing. If someone at Google was complicit, which is what the complainant in this case seems to be suggesting. Mark, I think you said earlier, if you work at Google and you're a rogue... <laughs> you I, have I a struggle with this. I struggle with this. <laughs> the idea that you work for this company where it, it's famous for this, this gargantuan planet-encompassing database of all this stuff about people. And if you're a crook and you work for Google and you have to choose between, shall I go and look at that database where we purposefully record everything people had for dinner and where they went and what they're searching for? Or shall I go and crawl through these unintelligible spell checker logs? Let's kindly, let's say that fails Occam's razor. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. And it's definitely wrong that the software didn't label this. Firstly, that it left that feature turned on, knowing that it didn't need spelling checking at any point. Oh, no, yeah. And secondly, not labeling the field in a browser saying, this is a password-protected field. You shouldn't let it be used for search. You shouldn't let it be used for spelling checking. You shouldn't let this out at all. Yeah, so this is a story about the pitfalls of modern programming, isn't it? Now we don't have to worry about things like memory memory and disk space. (laughs) Programming is increasingly just about gluing bits together, and that means you can get really interesting stuff done quite quickly and quite cheaply, but it also means that, you know, you're in amongst the things you're gluing together, there's normally a lot of functionality. You know, you've got the kitchen sink in there. So I have no problem with that part of the story. I think this is... I understand why people make software that way. Unfortunately, this bit got through the testing. Sounds like they fixed it pretty quickly. I just struggle with this idea that's, that, that Google, with all of its the billions of incoming requests it has every day that, that, that there's somebody sat there waiting for this one in a million chance of a password to turn up. With what he suggested, he said that I can see that my password is also going off to googleapis.com. Do, do you reckon he could also insinuate that perhaps because the password field isn't blanked out in the, in, in the, um, in the correct way that it could have gone off to other web services as well, as well as Google's API tracking. Well, he, no, he, may, he he's very specific about the allegation about his allegation. He's saying it's going off to Google, and it's to do with this particular spelling check thing. I get where he was coming from. What he said is the data goes off in plain text in an HTTP request. And that's how he wrote it up on his website. And then he got annoyed when Koinomi objected to that by saying, just to set the record straight, it was inside an HTTPS encrypted tunnel and it only went to Google. So only the other end of the tunnel would be able to decrypt it. Because when I saw that statement of his, I did infer that what he was saying is somehow there was an unencrypted web request that went out. So anyone else in the coffee shop would be able to sniff the password as well. And I think the other thing that you you can understand why they got Koinomi's backup in this case is he kind of started off saying, so here's the deal. 
make good the losses, which are obviously your problem because I've made some inferences that suggest that it could be, give me my money and then I'll keep quiet about it. That's always going to get you off on the wrong foot with any software company. Whether they're at fault or not, they have every right to try and make a scientific determination of what went wrong. But we, we shouldn't forget that actually at the root of this story, there is somebody who has lost uh, $60,000, yes, his claim. So one way or another, that money is somewhere else. Perhaps through the means that he suggests, but perhaps not. Yeah. But one way or another, unfortunately, he's lost his money. And that is not an unusual story uh, when we talk about crypto coins. It isn't. And I would have thought that, you know, in a situation like that, for all that having a 12-word passphrase means that you have good randomness, good entropy, good number of bits in your password. If I was storing something in a cold wallet in that way, I'd also want some second factor like something like a YubiKey that unless and until I plugged it in each and every time, nothing would happen. Finally, you'd have to be hiding under a rock this week to have avoided the Momo challenge or the hype, at least. Mark, I know you've been seething about this all week. Um, Can you talk us through the story and can you try and stay calm? Don't know what you mean. (laughs) So this is about Momo or the Momo challenge. Um, So in the last week, there has been a rash of uh, respectable institutions and people, schools, uh, mums, celebrities, uh, news websites. Dads. Dads too, lots of (laughs) schools, celebrities, websites, um, local TV. They've all been warning about this thing called Momo or the Momo Challenge. Just to be clear, the Momo Challenge is an urban legend. So it has some historical roots, but basically it's a hoax. The thing that all these people who've been running around with their hair on fire telling everybody else to be worried about is a hoax. And so it's a picture that looks like a scary chicken's head slash woman that is supposed to somehow tell you to do terrible things. And somehow this image, if you see it, trouble ahead. So what they've been warning about is uh, that videos that kids like on YouTube, so things like Peppa Pig, videos about Fortnite, um, have been intercut with something called the Momo Challenge, which is this very, very scary face. uh, And it's supposed to be uh, talking to children and telling them to do bad things to themselves. So self-harm and suicide and things like this. So this is not malware, right? It's not that the image is booby-trapped and if it gets on your computer, it does something bad. There's There's no real technical detail to how it would supposedly do this stuff. No, the, the best analogy is that this is a campfire side horror story. Right. So where's this come from? This all started a few years ago with something called the Momo Challenge. And uh, the, the legend has it that somebody left uh, some phone numbers on Facebook. And if you put the phone number into WhatsApp, you would see a WhatsApp account which had this scary face, which is uh, a cropped picture of a sculpture from a gallery in Japan. It's, it's basically the distorted face of a woman. It looks pretty disturbing. It was actually made by a guy who does models and things for horror movies. An expert in doing scary stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. Well done. And the idea was if you message this this, um, person, this account, then apparently mostly you were ignored, but occasionally you would receive disturbing messages in return or you'd receive disturbing pictures in return. If there's any truth to it at all, that seems to be where it lies. Or like the rest of the Momo Challenge, 
There is scant evidence for that. So for all the fear and, and worry that people have had in the last week, you know, there are no URLs. Nobody can point you to a video where this is actually happening. Nobody can show you screenshots of this thing happening. happening. Now, we'll get into a bit more detail of that in a second. So this but- is a kind of a bit like somebody deciding that if you get a phone call from someone who happens to call themselves Dave, then you should be afraid because Dave is bad. Bad things can happen. Yes, and all other names are fine yeah. by, by implication. Right. And there's a, there's a concern with and that. And that actually makes it much worse, doesn't it? So it began as this urban legend about a WhatsApp group, but that isn't what everybody's been panicking about. And it's an interesting illustration about how these memes... Because that was some time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a, a couple of years or... ago. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's two years ago. Um, and it was mostly in the Spanish-speaking part of the world, so South America, Spain. Now, at some point in its history, it sort of transformed into something else. So there's a, a challenge, a dare, if you like, called the Blue Whale Challenge. And the Blue Whale Challenge is another urban legend. The idea of the Blue Whale Challenge is that young people are challenged to do things over the course of 50 days and the challenges become increasingly more dangerous. So they start off quite benign and then they sort of slowly develop into self-harm and then on the 50th day, the end of the challenge is that you kill yourself. So this is another urban legend. It's not true. Now, what seems to have happened with the Momo challenge is at some point it's become the Blue Whale challenge. Oh, so that's why Momo is the name of the sculpture. That's how the word challenge got attached to exactly. it. Exactly. The, the allegation is that when you see this image, it will start trying to give you subliminal messages that make you do terrible things, so, and they'll get worse and worse and worse and worse. The idea is that it tells you to do those things. It's a bit like an upgrade to the Blue Whale Challenge, because suddenly this very scary idea is attached to a very scary picture. But even that isn't what's been causing the panic. So that was its own thing. Yeah. But what's happened in the last week is this idea that this Momo challenge, these challenges for young children to do harm to themselves or even to kill themselves, has suddenly been randomly appearing in YouTube videos. And that's when it seems to be to have exploded. And I completely understand why. So I'm a parent with young kids and there is nothing that parents worry more about than their children and the safety of their children. And there's almost nothing that parents wouldn't do to safeguard their children. So I, I get where that panic comes from and the desire to warn other people but unfortunately but since, since you wouldn't know that the momo image was going to be cut in halfway through a dodgy video surely the solution is to vet the video channels that your children use in the first place that isn't that quite difficult to do i'm yeah. not a parent but that'd be really difficult to do i think it depends on the age of your children the amount of control that you have and that kind of thing but i would say actually no it's not that difficult because that's exactly what we've done in our house with our kids and we, did that, we didn't do that in response to the Momo challenge, but we have had situations where one of the children has seen something that disturbed them. It was, it was age appropriate, but it was just something that they found scary. And so what we did is we, we sat down with them and we said, right, who do you like watching videos by? Who are your favourite people? And if they were people that we had watched with them, then it was okay. And if it was people we hadn't watched, then we went and checked them out to see what sort of content they produce. So they now have an allow list of things that they can watch. So they can watch anything by those authors if they want to. But if they want to watch something new, so once you've watched a YouTube video, it suggests other things you might want to watch. They're not allowed to click on those links. They have to go back to their allow list and they can pick something else from that. 
And they're quite happy doing that because actually that's content they really like watching. And they understand now because they had that little minor scare, they understand why that's in place and why that exists. So that's a YouTube allow list, is it? You can... So it's, well, this is just, it happens to be YouTube, but um, what we did was we just subscribed to a bunch of uh, YouTube content creators and just said, right, that list, that's a, that list of things we've subscribed to, that's the list of people that you're allowed to watch. But they can click off of that list or search for something. Well, else. they can, but they're, they're, our rules prevent them from doing that and there are consequences for not obeying the rules. Thank okay, you. so we're not trying to control them with technology. We trust them that, you know, we've built up that. But that only works once they get to a certain age, doesn't it? I mean, you can't yes. Do that I, so all of this comes down to parental supervision. You've got to know what your kids are doing online and then you have to work out. I mean, this stuff is difficult because I can't say what you should do. I can provide examples of what we do in our house and what we did maybe when the kids were younger. It's for every family's got to work out how they're going to safeguard their kids. Can I just say I really like that suggestion of yours, that you get a reasonably lengthy list that's from channels that your kids have chosen. You don't have to be a technological expert to decide as an adult pretty quickly, yeah, that content creator seems okay. It makes the risk of them coming across any inappropriate content, whether it's the chicken-headed woman or not, very much less likely. Because presumably if your kids can wander in to a channel where this kind of video might appear then there's no telling what million other harmful things they might wander into that don't look terrifying and actually look quite believable and seductive. And before you know it, they're giving out information that they shouldn't. And actually, that, there's, a, there's a really important point in what you're saying is I am not explaining what we do with our kids because I think that there's something specific you should do about the Momo Challenge. If you ask me what advice would I give people to deal with the Momo Challenge, none at all. My advice for you in the exactly. Momo Challenge is don't tell anybody else about it. Don't spread the rumours. Don't be part of the problem. Your children and you as well are subject to all manner of threats online all of the time. Your children are always at risk of seeing content that is not age appropriate or that they may find disturbing. And that's going to vary according to the child. And so you've got to work out what rules are appropriate. Now, we had a commenter on Naked Security who basically agreed with you, obviously, and said, you know, I've been trying to do exactly what you're recommending. And when people start telling me about this, kind of saying, I don't want to hear about it because cybersecurity is way, way, way much bigger than all of that. And people looked at me as though I was really the devil in the room. And so he said it was very hard to get that message across to people who are already in panic mode. I understand why people have been warning others about this, but if you're warning people about this, you are part of the problem. And actually, you have helped create a problem because there wasn't a Momo challenge. It didn't exist. But there is now a problem because what happens as a result of all this panic and all these people referencing each other and using each other as proof that something that doesn't exist actually exists is now the Momo picture is everywhere. So you could easily look at your parents' computer screen and see the Momo picture or be looking at a YouTube video and see a video about the Momo challenge hoax. Well, so, also there are copycats now, aren't there? And there yeah, yeah, so unfortunately there, there are now copycats as well. So somebody even linked to one from our comments on Facebook, yeah. uh, which obviously we've deleted. But even before that, simply because this picture is everywhere, we have already had to speak to our children about what this is because they're hearing about it in the playground. So it's turned from being scary, which it always was, to being harmful, 
We've made it harmful by telling children to be really, really, really afraid of it. Needlessly afraid of it. Yes, and massively increase the chances of children actually coming into contact <laughs> yeah. with it uh, in any way at all. It's really funny, is it? You know, as I say, I understand why people want to warn others about this. But you need to exercise good judgment when you're spreading those sorts of um, those sorts of rumours. But how do how can people tell the difference between that and something that's a moral panic? So I've been working in and around computer security now for 17 years and I have never received an email or a social media message from somebody I know or a celebrity or basically anybody that isn't a computer security company about something like this, a virus warning, you know, be careful about this thing happening on YouTube, that was true. I'm not saying you can't receive those sorts of messages, but in my experience, if you receive something from somebody by email saying, beware of this, then it's almost certainly not true. And normally with these things, all you need to do is Google it and go to a trusted source like Naked Security or a fact checker like Snopes, or, you know, know your meme or something like that. And you'll immediately run into a whole bunch of information about what this thing is, what it really is and where it comes from. So I'd be very, very cautious about if you receive messages from any source other than a computer, even a news website. There was a really interesting thread on Twitter a couple of days ago talking about how this has been spread in the US through local TV companies. Repeating a falsehood 10,000 times doesn't leave you with one falsehood. It leaves you with what sounds like 10,000 independent reports. And if any one of them is true, we're all doomed. And that's why these things do get a, a kind of life or a fear all of their own. Agreed. That's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? I am at DuckBlog on Twitter. Mark? At Internet of Hens, of course. Matt? At InfosecBody. On Instagram and Twitter. Ooh. I'm at Anna Brading on Twitter and we are, of course, at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Naked Security. Please rate and review our podcast. It helps boost us up the charts and allows other people to find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions for the podcast or you can email us at tips at sophos.com. And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.